Let us pray. Father, we know that by your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you spoke your word through a group of Galilean Jews. Pray now by your Spirit that you would speak your word through my mouth and that you would open our ears to hear what you were saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. According to the author Ross Douthat, the modern America in which you and I live is a decadent society, which is to say, in his words, that we live in a time of economic stagnation, institutional decay, and cultural and intellectual exhaustion. And just think, if you could travel back to America, say 70 years ago, you would find a country of people filled with optimism and excitement and visions of a bright and better future, a future where we'd all be flying around in cars and where we'd be populating moon and the Mars with new colonies and where things like war and poverty would be a thing of the past. And back then, Dwight Eisenhower was leading the country with an 80% approval rating. And people were going to college for the first time, first people in their families able to go to college and finishing college with confidence and hope in the job market that they would meet. People were getting married. They were having a record number of children. Now compare that to today. Today, as Douthat points out, our, our innovation and creativity have dwindled. Maybe not the level of innovation, but certainly certainly how high our visions are. No longer do we think about inventing flying cars or making space colonies. Now we focus on thinner cell phones and faster internet speeds. And instead of producing groundbreaking films like The Godfather and The Wizard of Oz and Citizen Kane, now what Hollywood is offering to us is an endless stream of sequels and CGI sequences. In the past 13 years, there hasn't been a month that has gone by where a single American president has enjoyed even a 50% approval rating. You know, about in the 60s and 70s, they started doing public social surveys, and one of the results is that they found more than 70% of Americans stated genuine trust in their public institutions. That same survey now reports that number at 20%. And we may still be a wealthy and prosperous country, but somewhere along the way, we've lost our optimism and visionary spirit. We've stopped innovating, stopped trusting our elected officials, stopped believing that our children will have a better future. In fact, if you look at our current birth rates, it seems like we've almost just decided to stop having children altogether. And that's to say nothing of the numerous other social ills that we could name. Poverty and crime continue to haunt both rural and urban America. Rates of incarceration have more than quadrupled in the last 50 years. We're experiencing record levels of anxiety, depression, all manner of addictions. Delta's right. We live in a decadent society. 
And by that, I don't just mean the American society as it exists outside these walls. There is decline and decay in the church as well. Not a week goes by that we don't hear another news story of some other Christian leader who's been implicated in a scandal of abuse or some new statistic that's been published showing how how many church members have left and how many young people are leaving the faith. If it's difficult to feel much optimism about the future of America, it's not much easier to feel any optimism about the future of the church. All right, well, I'm going to stop there. The point was to get you thoroughly depressed. (laughs) I'm the one preaching, and even I'm starting to feel a little hopeless, so... But you know, I take, I take great comfort knowing that we're not the first people who have had to face stagnation and decline. By the time that the prophet Ezekiel received his first vision from God in the year 593 BC, by that time, the Jewish people had already undergone centuries of steady social decay. Once upon a time, they had been a great, a great nation, a great society. Under King David, they had conquered their enemies and prospered. Under King Solomon, they had built that grand and glorious temple. But now those glory days were long gone. Solomon's foolish son, Rehoboam, was such an abusive king that he he split the kingdom. And then generations of bad kings after him, they led the people astray and their once great society devolved into a nation of idol worshipers who took advantage of the poor and sacrificed their own children to pagan gods. Now sure, there were moments, moments when it things like, seemed like things were getting better, when they might be able to revive Jewish society. You might remember in the 8th century when King Hezekiah took over that he, he tore down all the places of idol worship and he, he set himself to follow the law of God. And at that point, God blessed them and he gave them victory over the Philistines and he protected them from the Assyrians. But then after Hezekiah came King Manasseh and he was the worst. I'm serious. He was literally the worst king in the history of Judah. And that's, that's saying something. Manasseh not only rebuilt all the places of idol worship that his father had torn down, he actually went so far as to put pagan altars in the Jerusalem temple. He even burned his own son as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. And according to 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that the blood covered the streets of Jerusalem from one end of the city to the other. Less than 50 years after that, the Jewish people, they finally suffered the consequence of all those years of social decline when the Babylonians came in and captured them and captured their their capital city and conquered them and took the best and brightest of all their citizens and forcibly shipped them off to Babylon to live as exiles. That was the situation in which the prophet Ezekiel began to first receive visions. There's no wonder that the book of Ezekiel is filled with so much loss and lament because there was a lot to lament at that time. Just as there's a lot to lament in our own day. 
But the visions that Ezekiel received, they weren't all doom and gloom. In chapter 37, he's given a vision where he's taken out and he's shown a valley that is littered with dry bones. And I don't just mean skeletons. I mean bones that have been broken and shattered and scattered and bleached out and covered in dirt and sand. And in the vision, Ezekiel is told that these bones represent the whole house of Israel, that once great nation that had fallen into ruin. And as he's looking at those bones, the Spirit of God asks him a question. Son of man, can these bones live? I think that is one of the most poignant and profound questions in the whole Bible. It's the question that haunts every person who witnesses decline and decay in their society or church. It's the question that confronts every parent who has to watch as their once hopeful and confident child slips further and further into hopelessness or indifference. It's the question that almost every single one of us has asked at least at one time or another about the condition of our own dry and dusty souls. Can these bones live? If the answer depends upon human ability or effort, then the obvious answer is no. But that is not the answer that Ezekiel receives. After God asks him the question, he tells Ezekiel to prophesy. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come over you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel does, he, he prophesies. And as I prophesied, he says, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones began to come together bone to bone. And then sinews and flesh begin to grow on these bones and they turn into full human bodies. And then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they might live. Now, that might sound kind of strange to say to Ezekiel that he needs to prophesy to some breath. But you might know that the word for breath in Hebrew is the same word for the word spirit. So he's not just being told to prophesy to some breath, he's being told to call on the spirit. The same spirit that we read about in Genesis chapter two, who breathes the breath of God into a lifeless body and creates the first living, breathing human being. What Ezekiel is witnessing in this vision, it might seem strange, but it is in fact one of the most important truths that we can ever learn. Because you and I, we live in a world of bones. And we look around, all around us, and sometimes it's all we can see. Dried up bones, the scattered remnants of old dreams and visions, hopes that we've long ago given up on. And maybe there's little reason to think that anything will change. Maybe those bones really are dead. But let us never forget this truth. 
that the word of God and the spirit of God can do what is humanly impossible and they can turn dry bones into living people. And that's what Pentecost is all about, isn't it? In our reading from the book of Acts this morning, we we read about what happened on the day of Pentecost, how the Holy Spirit came upon those followers of Jesus and they began to speak in different languages. And you might think, well, that's a very impressive, but it doesn't really seem to be the same thing as bones becoming living beings. But think about what Ezekiel's vision meant. What God was telling Ezekiel is that he would do the humanly impossible. He would make a dead and decadent society and he would transform it and create for himself a living people. And that is what takes place on Pentecost. How many people, here's a quiz for you, how many people were gathered together that day and experienced the events of Pentecost? Acts chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that the whole number of them all together was around 120 people. So presuming everybody was there, that's how many people. And Acts 2 says that they were all gathered together, apparently in a house, they were all gathered together, when all of a sudden there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That sounds very interesting, doesn't it? Sounds very similar to what Ezekiel saw in that vision with the breath coming from the four winds. And then what happened? Well, then those people are filled with the Spirit of God and they begin to speak in other tongues. And in and of itself, that's, that's pretty miraculous. A bunch of Galilean Jews become multilingual all of a sudden, speaking in other languages. But you have to remember what Jesus had told them just a chapter before, right before he ascended. He said that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what's taking place. These people, they're bearing witness to what God has done in Jesus. The people who hear them speaking in those languages, they say that they hear them proclaiming the mighty works of God. And through their witness, through that spirit-inspired speech, the seemingly impossible happens. That group of 120 mostly nameless Galilean Jews becomes a community of thousands. Within two decades, there are communities of Christians popping up in Roman cities all across the Mediterranean world. By the end of that century, Christianity, these communities have spread as far as Ethiopia, India, and the British Isles. Within a couple centuries, that group of 120 Galilean Jews the faith that those 120 had becomes the faith of the Roman Empire. To this day, historians and, and social scientists, they try to come up with explanations for how this took place. How was it this tiny sect of Jews that could all fit in a single house overtook the world as the largest religion in the world? It defies it defies all odds, and really, it defies all explanation. And it's continuing to happen to this day. We might not see it, but did you know, you know how many Christians there were on the continent of Africa in the year 1900? It was around 8 million. You know how many are there today? Over 600 million. 
in a single century. You know, within the last four decades, within the last four decades, the number of Christians in China, anti-Christian communist China, the number of Christians has grown from around a million to a hundred million in four decades. You know, the, one of the fastest growing Christian movements in the world today is in the Muslim country of Iran. No social scientist would have predicted these explosions of Christian growth. They just defy all expectation. And that shouldn't surprise us because the world in which we live is not governed or limited by what is probable or possible in human terms. We may forget it and we may not realize it, but the world in which we live is governed by a God whose spirit is living and active and blows where he wills and can take a bunch of dried up bones and create a living community for himself. You know, last week in his sermon, Dean Paul mentioned the, the recent passing of the, the pastor and author, Timothy Keller. And some of you might have been keeping up with that. You might know that Tim Keller, for the last three years of his life, he was undergoing treatment for pancreatic cancer. But being Tim Keller, he just kept continuing to read and write even as he was going through chemo. And two months before he died, two months before he died, he published an article and it was about revival. And in the article, he talked about times in his own life when he had witnessed the surprising and explicable work of the Holy Spirit. The first was when he was a college student at Bucknell University in the year 1970. And think about this. this you, you finished the tumultuous decade of the 1960s. No one expects a revival of interest in Christianity among college students. It's 1970. And for the first two years that he was in college, the student ministry on campus averaged maybe five to 15 participants. But all of a sudden in his junior year, it exploded and grew more than tenfold, inexplicably. And then in 1989, Tim and his wife went to plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And, you know, just have to watch a movie from the 80s or early 90s. New York City in 1989 is not the clean, nice place it is today. That's when prostitution was everywhere. Times Square was filled with a bunch of seedy adult film stores. People were fleeing the city to try to escape the rates of crime. It's not exactly a right place for a church plant, but they went there. They went there, just the two of them, and in a matter of two years, it went from Tim and his wife to over a thousand people worshiping every Sunday. And you might say, well, what, what did he do that was so great? What's the secret there? Some people might say, well, it's because Tim is such an amazingly gifted preacher and he drew in the crowds or because he had such great church growth strategies. But Tim himself, when he talked about it, he said, first off, he actually, he was not a good preacher. This was early in his career. He was like, he said he got better, but he was pretty rough early on. Wasn't a very good preacher and he had no idea what he was doing at all. And it just grew. And the only reason that he could give, the only thing that he could point to was the Spirit of God doing his work of bringing dead bones to life. Or to use Tim's preferred term, revival. Now I wonder, if you think about this vision of Ezekiel, I wonder what the dry bones are for you. If God were to show up to you right now and give you a vision and then he asked you the question, can these bones live? 
what would those bones represent for you? Now, maybe they're the bones of our decadent society. Maybe that's what you worry about. Maybe what saddens you is seeing the decline of our country and all the countless problems it faces. Or maybe the bones that you grieve over are the bones of a dying and shrinking church. You hear statistics about all the people who have left. You watch as more and more people express disbelief or at least disinterest in Christianity. And you wonder, is there a future to the church? Or maybe it's something more personal. Maybe the bones in your vision represent the decline and stagnation in your own life or heart or in the lives of those whom you love. The fact is there are bones all around us. And sometimes it's very difficult to believe that they will ever be anything else. But today is Pentecost. Today we remember what the Spirit of God did when he came upon 120 Galilean Jews and used them to transform the world. Today we recognize that same living and active spirit at work in places like China and Iran where millions of people are coming to Jesus. And today we give thanks for what Tim Keller knew so well, which is that the Spirit of God can breathe new life into the hardest of places, into the stoniest of hearts. So this morning, let the prayer of our hearts, let our prayer be the words that we're going to sing together in just a couple minutes. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into our willing souls. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew our hearts and make us whole. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.